If you have your Bible with you, open it up to Amos chapter 1. You may be wondering, why Amos? Well, simply put, because it's part of God's Word. And it's my conviction that we, as God's people, need a balanced diet. If man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, then it's important that we're eating from all the food groups, as it were, from all the parts of Scripture, from every word that comes from the mouth of God. One theologian commented that in the history of the active exposition of the Bible, it is not for nothing that on the one hand, Amos has been so frequently neglected, and that on the other, he has been the classical biblical witness for all the movements in which the conscience of the church has been reawakened towards how we treat others, and therefore to a repudiation of the base and dangerous overlooking of this basic element in Christian truth and the revealed word of God himself. Amos calls us to live like Christ as true humans and calls out all the ways that we act inhumanely towards others. It's not an easy book, though. Be warned. But it's a good book. We're going to begin by looking at Amos chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And then we're going to skip over a few pages to chapter 7 and look at verses 10 through 17. Uh, these are all the biographical bits in the book of Amos. So we're going to begin. It's going to help orient us to know a bit about Amos, his ministry, and his life. Hear now the reading of God's word. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Then turning to chapter 7, verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go flee away from the land of Judah and eat the bread there. Prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. This is God's word. My outline this morning is fairly simple. Uh, this passage calls us to reflect on the messenger, the message, 
and the response. The messenger, the message, and the response. The first truth in this passage is that God speaks through his messengers. God speaks through his messengers. God doesn't speak through his messengers in a vacuum. No, he calls real people in the real world, in a real time and place. And so the book of Amos begins by telling us something about the context in which Amos prophesied. It was in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king in Israel. Jeroboam, this king in Israel, reigned about 150 years after the time of David and Solomon. The Jeroboam of Amos' day is actually Jeroboam II. He's named for this man named Jeroboam who led a revolt against Solomon's son Rehoboam and split Israel into two kingdoms. Judah in the south, with its temple and its capital at Jerusalem, and Israel in the north, with its capital in Samaria and its temples in Dan and Bethel. Now, 150 years later, Assyria, who had been the world's superpower of its day, was in disarray. And Jeroboam II oversaw a time of great growth and prosperity in Israel. In fact, Jeroboam was the first and only king of Israel to restore the northern uh, northern kingdom of Israel to the size it was in Solomon's day. This is a time when Israel is stable. Jeroboam reigns for 41 years, and it's prosperous. Israel's GDP is up. Israel is experiencing growth and peace. The little nations round about have all been subdued. Israel's borders are secure. Things are looking up. This is the situation that God sent his prophet Amos into. From the overlap of Uzziah and Jeroboam's reigns, we can roughly place Amos' ministry somewhere between 765 and 750 B.C., about the mid-8th century. So Amos is probably the first prophet to have a book of his prophecies written down. He's probably ministering a bit earlier than Hosea and Isaiah. Who is this messenger Amos? The book begins with a little bit of background information. It's a bit like looking at the back of a baseball card where you see a baseball player's stats. We get these quick facts, his name, his profession, his hometown. Unlike many of the other prophets, Amos isn't identified by his father's name, but rather he's identified as one of the shepherds of Tekoa. Uh, this, This word for shepherd here, it's not the usual word, but it seems to refer to someone who is a sheep breeder. So perhaps he focused on developing and selling good stock to other flocks. Maybe he traveled around as part of that work. Then in chapter 7, Amos says, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son. That is to say, I'm not a professional prophet. I wasn't trained in the guild of prophets. Rather, I was a herdsman or a cattleman and a dresser of sycamore figs. So Amos is a sheep breeder, a cattleman, an arborist, not a professional prophet or a trained religious leader. And he comes from Tekoa, about 10 miles south of Jerusalem, a bit south of Bethlehem. It's right at the transition region between the Judean hill country and the southern plains. God speaks through his messengers, and these are particular people with a particular background. They bring their particular personalities to their work. Of course, to be a messenger is to be an intermediary, right? It means you bring a messenger from one person to another. In this case, Amos brings a message from God to a people. 
Who is it that Amos brings this message to? Here's one of the interesting things about the book of Amos. 1-1 says that his words concern Israel. That is the northern kingdom, not his own home country. And we see from 7.10 that we read that his preaching has been in Bethel, the temple city of the northern kingdom, about 20 miles north of Tekoa. So although Amos is a sheep breeder from the southern kingdom, his first audience is the northern kingdom of Israel. We see some of the dynamics at play in the way Amaziah tries to silence Amos. He says, go back to your home country. It's a bit like if a businessman from Seattle or Portland came up to us and started preaching and telling us about all the social woes here in the North County and how we need to straighten things out. Our first instinct would be, well, Seattle and Portland, you know, wherever you're from, has enough problems of its own. Go back and straighten out your own city before you tell us what to do. And that's kind of the response that Amos seems to get here in Israel. So his first audience is the northern kingdom, where he's a bit of a foreigner. But he has a second audience as well. 1-1 in the first instance dates his ministry with reference to Uzziah, the king of Judah. Although Amos went and prophesied in Israel in the northern kingdom, the written book of Amos seems to have been preserved and read by those in the south. We know that Amos' prophecies were not saved in the northern kingdom because it was ultimately destroyed. The people went off into captivity never to return. But those in the southern kingdom who did eventually return from exile have saved Amos' prophecy, and that's why it's part of our Bible today. Why would southern Judahites save Amos' prophecies to northern Israel? Well, because they recognized that this scroll was not just about northern problems, but it was in fact a message from God And as God's word has ongoing relevance for God's people throughout all generations. As we will see, Amos foreshadows a coming earthquake and a coming judgment on the northern kingdom. So the book is dated two years before the earthquake. This earthquake, when it came to happen, should have been an initial sign that Amos was a true prophet and his warning should have been heeded. But they were not. And so 30 or 40 years later, Israel is destroyed by Assyria. But in Judah, at least some people recognize that these signs, the earthquake, the destruction of the northern kingdom, they were signs validating Amos' prophecy. And so they saved his words. They said, this is the word of God, as we've just said after reading it. Why would Amos, a sheep breeder, cattleman, fig dresser from the south, travel north into another country to preach prophecies. Well, in the short narrative that we read in chapter 7, we see Amos's foundation. He knew himself to be a messenger from God. He knew himself to be God's messenger. First, Amos had a vocation, a call. He says, the Lord took me from following the flock, just as he took Moses from following his father-in-law's flocks in the wilderness, just as he took David from following his father's flock. So he took Amos from following the flocks and sent him to prophesy. Second, Amos receives a revelation from God. In one one, it says, these are the words of Amos which he saw. It's a bit of a funny thing to see words. It doesn't quite track in English. But the point is, when we see something, it's something outside of ourselves. That is to say, Amos didn't travel around and come up with his own social critique, like Karl Marx or something like that. No, this is God's own word. He's given a message. 
And third, Amos is sent. The Lord said to me, go, prophesy to my people Israel. Go to Israel, try and win them back. Try to convince them to follow my ways. Now, like Amos, none of us are professional prophets. Unlike Amos, none of us will be called to be prophets in the sense that Amos was. But Amos is an important reminder that God calls and uses unlikely people as his messengers. You might say, I'm nothing more than a shepherd, a fig dresser. And yet you are the kind of person then that God uses to bring his message. We won't be prophets like Amos. We won't bring a new word from God. But God can use any of us as his messengers to share his word, the good news of the gospel with others. And our foundation for doing so is not our natural gifts or abilities. No, indeed, it's our weakness. The Lord calls us. He gives us his word and he sends us out. Remember the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Go and make disciples. Take my word to all the nations. God speaks through his messengers. A second truth in this passage is that God's message shakes the world. God's message shakes the world. The beginning of Amos invites us to reflect on this relationship between Amos's words and God's word, the word of the Lord. Uh, many of the prophetic books like Hosea and Joel begin like this. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea in the days of Uzziah. The word of the Lord that came to Joel. But Amos doesn't begin saying this is the word of the Lord that came to Amos. It says these are the words of Amos. They're Amos's words. They come from Amos's own mouth, from his mind. They're shaped by his personality. And yet, as we will see in the coming weeks, that more so even than any other prophet, Amos stresses that his speaking is not his own opinions or views of things. He is convinced that he is proclaiming the word of the Lord. By my count, 15 times in, in the book of Amos, in these nine chapters, we have the phrase, thus declares the Lord. 14 times we have the phrase, thus says the Lord. Eight times we have the phrase, says the Lord. And then there's similar phrases like, this is what the Lord commands. The Lord has sworn this. So some 40 to 50 times in these nine chapters, Amos makes clear that the words he is speaking is God's word. In a mysterious sense that we can't fully explain, the words of Amos are the word of God. I say mysterious because the prophet's personality is not put on hold. It's not like his brain shuts off while he's writing down or speaking these prophecies. Best in that sense. Rather, Amos is different from Hosea and Isaiah. He has a different personality. And yet God's word comes through each one. And God's message shakes the world. It's frequent to hear people talk about being on the right side of history or claiming that others are on the wrong side of history. People say my side of some conflict or argument is going to be vindicated by the course of history. And we can imagine people in Amos's day in the northern kingdom, like this priest Amaziah, telling Amos, you're on the wrong side of history. Look, Jeroboam's winning all these victories, the kingdom's expanding, the economy is growing, you're on the wrong side of history. But the truth is we can't read right and wrong off public opinion polls. 
Amos comes warning of defeat and exile for injustice. Yet Israel seems so secure. Its borders are expanding, its economy is growing, and Assyria isn't even on the radar. Assyria appears to be a failed nation state at this point. But if we can't read right and wrong off of public opinion polls, the right side of history, as it were, is not a reliable moral compass. In fact, if you look at 2 Kings 14 and 15, we find a strange irony in the accounts of Jeroboam and Uzziah, these two kings, one of the northern kingdom, one of the southern. 2 Kings says, Jeroboam did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet he restored the border of Israel according to the word of the Lord, which God had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet. The Lord had seen the affliction of Israel was very bitter, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam. So Jeroboam is a king who does what is evil, but nevertheless God uses him to deliver Israel from her national enemies and to win many victories. On the other hand, 2 Kings says Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but the Lord touched the king so that he was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house. If you're just looking at the flow of history, this certainly is a bizarre irony, isn't it? From the outside, it looks like Jeroboam is on the right side of history. He's winning victories. He has a long and peaceful reign. And it looks like Uzziah is on the wrong side of history. After all, not only is Judah in some ways subjected to Israel, the northern kingdom, but Uzziah himself is struck with a serious health issue that he struggles with for his entire life. Maybe some of us have wondered, Am I, is God mad at me? Is that why I'm struck with whatever condition I'm struggling with? But we can't judge the right and wrong based on victories or health or prosperity or being on the right side of history. Ultimately, being in the right is about having a real living relationship with God. We judge right or wrong not by wealth or health or victories or which church is growing or what the public opinion polls say or which party controls Congress. Morals is not something that flips back and forth that easily. Ultimately, we can judge right and wrong only on the basis of God's word. And God's word, his message, shakes the world. In Amos 1-2, we get this little prophecy that's a preview of the whole book. The Lord roars from Zion and his voice thunders from Jerusalem. The shepherds' pastures mourn and the top of Carmel withers. One of our family's favorite spots to go is to the Woodland Park Zoo. If you've gone to the zoo and the lions are active and roaring, you know that you can hear them from anywhere in the zoo. Even from the neighborhoods outside the zoo, you can hear the lions roaring. Well, at the zoo, they're inside an enclosure. There's walls, there's a moat, there's wires and fences. And so you hear the lion roaring and you think, well, that's neat that we hear the lion roaring. But imagine now being a shepherd like Amos, out in the hill country in the bush watching your sheep. And you hear that lion's roar that echoes, can be heard for a half mile away. Imagine hearing that echoing off the hills round about you. It would be terrifying. You'd be shaking in your sandals. And this other phrase, the ESV says, the Lord utters his voice, but it can refer also to the sound of a thunderstorm rolling in, raging off the Mediterranean Sea and coming across the land. Again, maybe you've been caught out in a storm when you're working outside or, or hiking away from shelter, and a storm is quite terrifying when you're outdoors. You're not, you're not indoors in shelter. Isaiah 40 has this similar short introduction to those prophecies. There, the, the introduction in Isaiah 40 is, 
Comfort, comfort, my people Israel. But Amos' introduction is not comfort, comfort. It's the Lord roars like a lion from Zion. His voice thunders from Jerusalem. Amos is saying, buckle up. God's message shakes the world. No matter how prosperous a nation is, no matter how many victories it wins, if it mistreats the vulnerable, if it neglects God's commands, it can only shake before the word of the holy and just God. This is part of the significance of this earthquake that takes place two years after Amos' prophecies. The Lord's final judgment in chapter 9 is, Behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes a sieve, and all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say disaster will not overtake us. And actually throughout Amos, there's these similar allusions to this coming earthquake. Now, Amos' message is initially ignored, but two years later when Israel's struck with this earthquake, when it's literally shaken at the roar of the Lord, people should have thought, remember that guy Amos who warned us? Let's revisit his prophecies. We better turn to him lest we die by the sword. Notice one more thing in this initial prophecy in verse 2. Although the northern kingdom had its own king sanctuary, temple of the kingdom that Amaziah is defending, Amos says the Lord's voice roars from Zion and Jerusalem, and it roars over the north, and we're going to see next week, it roars over all the nations round about, all the way to the Carmel Range in the north of Israel. That just because you have a different national border, it doesn't mean you can escape God's just word. God's word comes and it shakes the world. And how we receive that word depends on how we respond, how we position ourselves. Whether that roar is a reassurance that we have a lion defending us, or if that roar is a threat and we're afraid because there's a lion stalking us. It all depends on how we respond. And so this brings us to a third truth in this passage. God's message shouldn't be ignored. God's message shouldn't be ignored. In this story in chapter 7 of Amaziah's confrontation with Amos, it should be a warning to us. We should read this story and it should be saying something like, ignore God's message at your own peril. Amaziah seems to be the chief priest at this northern temple in Bethel, so he's personally threatened by this roar from Zion, the temple in Jerusalem. It's not entirely clear if Amos has only been prophesying in, in Bethel or if he's been traveling around maybe to Samaria. Either way, Amaziah goes to King Jeroboam of Israel to make sure he's aware of what Amos has been preaching. But see how selectively Amaziah reports on Amos in a way that entirely misrepresents him. Amaziah says Amos is at the center of a conspiracy against King Jeroboam. But nowhere in the book do we have any hints that Amos is working with others to try and overthrow the king. Rather, in the earlier part of chapter 7 that we'll get to in a few weeks, we see that Amos is actually interceding on behalf of Israel. He's praying to God for Israel's deliverance, and yet Amaziah says he's at the center of a conspiracy. Although Amos 14 times in this book says, thus says the Lord, Amaziah reports, thus says Amos. He reduces it all to the human level, to the political. Based on Amaziah's report to Jeroboam, you might not even realize that Amos is a prophet. 
it sounds like he's just instigating a conspiracy. We never hear how Jeroboam responds to this report. Instead, Amaziah takes matters into his own hands and confronts Amos. He's already misrepresented Amos to the king, but now he comes to Amos himself. First, he tempts Amos with easy money. He says, go back to Judah, to your own land, where people will accept you, and eat the bread there. Earn your money there. There's easy living in Jerusalem by prophesying. That's a good job. But then second, Amaziah threatens Amos. Never again prophesy here. And these are the two perennial challenges that anyone who, any of God's people who proclaim his word face. To go after easy money on the one hand, or to avoid confrontation, to be silenced on the other. But see Amos' response. First, he corrects Amaziah. He is no professional prophet. He says, I'm a cattleman, an arborist. But he knows his foundation. He knows why he's prophesying. He's been called by God, given a message, and sent to preach. And what can he do but be faithful to God's command? Second, he says, you say do not prophesy nor preach. So what should I do? I must obey the Lord rather than men. Therefore, hear this. Thus says the Lord. Amos doesn't try to keep his preaching secret or out of the way. He prophesies right in Amaziah's face. And his message to Amaziah should cause us to shake. It's a stern warning that God's message shouldn't be ignored. He says, your wife will fornicate in the city. Your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself will die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from the land. In short, he's saying, I've been warning you. I've been interceding for you. But if Israel continues to ignore and reject God's message, then the horrors of war will descend on Israel. This doesn't mean that God endorses these uh, horrific, violent things that are being prophesied here. Next week, in fact, we'll see that all the various nations round about that do these things are punished for it. It's wrong, and so God holds them accountable. But nevertheless, although God does not endorse the violence of war, in his good providence, he can use war to chastise his people. It's interesting that this little narrative has no real resolution. Amaziah threatens Amos. Amos responds by prophesying judgment. But we don't know what Jeroboam did. We don't know how Amaziah responds. We hope that perhaps Amaziah repents and changes course. We hope that he responds rightly to God's word, but we don't know. We know that Jeroboam probably doesn't respond because although he dies peacefully in his old age, his son is assassinated in his first year and then there's a series of assassinations and the kingdom basically starts falling apart. We don't know what happened to Amos. Does he return to Judah? Does he keep prophesying? Later, Jewish tradition has it that Amos is actually martyred for continuing to prophesy in the northern kingdom. But the story in chapter 7 is left open. It's left open because it wants us, the readers, to be drawn into the story, to ask, how would I respond if I was in Amaziah's shoes? Well, we might not respond well, but we know how we should respond to the roar of God's word. We should respond rightly by submitting. We should not ignore God's message. We should return to the Lord. We should reform how we treat others. Amos was confronted with the same thing. God called him and gave him a message and sent him out. 
but it would have been much easier to keep doing his job and never go to the northern kingdom. And yet Amos provides a model for us. He responds to God's word. He does what God calls him to do. And so we too are called to respond to God's word. The Lord roars from Zion, and it's terrifying. His message shakes the world. But the Lion of Zion, who roars from Zion, the Lion of Judah, who roars from Zion, is also the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The fire that withers Mount Carmel and the pasture lands is also the fire that transforms Moses at the burning bush and the disciples on the day of Pentecost. And so the question is, how will we respond? Will we submit to the roar or will we oppose it? Don't ignore God's message.